Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Jody Cantor, an investigative reporter for The New York Times and a contributor to CBS News. Cantor previously covered politics for the paper and wrote a book about the Obamas. More recently, she has spent months reporting stories on Amazon.com and Syrian refugees in Canada. But this month, she and her colleague Megan Twohey broke a massive story about film producer Harvey Weinstein's long history of sexual harassment and assault. She and the Times' Rachel Abrams followed it up this week with more accounts of harassment by Weinstein from actresses such as Gwyneth Paltrow and Angelina Jolie. Meanwhile, The New Yorker released a blockbuster story by Ronan Farrow about women who say they were harassed or raped by Weinstein. Weinstein himself has left his company and is likely to face a variety of legal action. To talk about all this, Jody Cantor joins me now from the Times building in New York. Jody Cantor, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about how you got on this story. When did you start and, and what was the what was the impetus? Well, the Times has made a real commitment to sexual harassment reporting this year. My colleagues Emily Steele and Mike Schmidt did the Bill O'Reilly story, and Katie Benner had done some really startling reporting on women in Silicon Valley. Um, so basically, we said as investigative journalists, we can try to look at the whole pattern here. We can say, um, let's not just focus on one individual woman's experience. Um, let's see if there's a pattern of allegations over time. And so the editors came to us and said, basically, what do you think are the biggest untold stories? And I did some research and I did some reporting and, um, you know, the Weinstein story was intimidating. It was clear that a lot of people had tried it over the years, um, it was so shrouded in rumor that they, it, it was very odd because on the one hand, it was kind of an open secret, but on the other hand, almost nothing had ever been documented. Well, th- that's one of the things I'm interested in is when you say it's an open secret, because there's been this a lot of talking about how, you know, you read everyone knew or everyone in the media knew or everyone in Hollywood knew. I mean, when you started on this story, was it just at the level of rumor? Had you had you heard firsthand accounts? What was what was your initial feeling when you decided there must be or there may be something here? I'll tell you something that looks really strange now. There's nothing more important in the film business than the Oscars, right? So if you look at the Oscar announcements in 2013, the comedian Seth MacFarlane is announcing the nominees and he gets to a bunch of, you know, prominent female actresses. He reads off the name, the names of the five nominees and he says, "Congratulations, ladies. You no longer have to be uh, you no longer have to pretend to be attracted to Harvey Weinstein. And I've listened to the tape and there's a lot of laughter on the tape. And so it was sort of like everyone in Hollywood was joking about a known thing. But then as we got further in our reporting, we found out that there were really serious allegations dating from as recently as 2015. And so it's sort of like people were laughing about this in open when behind the scenes, the alleged abuse was still going on. So- once you sort of decide to embark on this story, were you mostly in New York? Were you in Hollywood? Where where was the, the bulk of your reporting? I reported um, in a number of places. Um, I was in New York and L.A. Um, but a lot of it, a lot of it, I did a lot of phone interviews, um, too. And I should say that and I should say the United Kingdom. How long exactly were you on the story total? When did you when did about when did four you months? So you've been you do the story for you're working on the story for about four months. I guess I'm wondering, like, is it a matter of you're hearing all these stories and you're trying to confirm them that they're true? Is it a matter of getting people to go on the record versus off the record? What what is the biggest challenge in actually 
taking your reporting and turning it into a story that The Times can publish? I think all along what we were looking for was clear evidence, and that can come in a lot of different forms. If you look at the two big stories we've done so far, which were the initial investigation that we published last Thursday, and then the story that we published yesterday about um, the casting couch with these well-known actresses going on the record, they have a variety of forms of evidence. They do have on-the-record accounts from women, and those are really important, but they also have settlement information. There's the financial trail of the money that was paid out over the years. And then also there were internal company documents, which was a really important element of the first story, because we were able to show that these were live issues at the Weinstein Company. There's a woman named Lauren O'Connor who was a junior executive, and in 2015, she wrote a stemwinder of a memo documenting sexual harassment allegations at the company. These were really upsetting incidents. She had a colleague who was uh, forced, she says, to give Harvey Weinstein a massage in his hotel room when he was naked. Um, you know, the, the memorable line from that memo is, uh, the balance of power at this company is me zero, Harvey Weinstein 10. So we were able to get that document and also to figure out that not that much had been done to address her complaints. And so that was very powerful proof. And I was very happy that we were able to get those written records because I felt in a way that we were taking some of the pressure off the women to come forward. And I say that with very mixed feelings as a reporter, because on the one hand, of course, I believe in women coming forward. That is in many ways what this entire project has uh, been about. But on the other hand, there's something really unfair in sexual harassment reporting that um, in the course of reporting the story, um, some of the alleged victims would say to me, how come it's my job to address this? Like I was the victim. Uh, You know, I don't necessarily want to go public. I didn't do anything wrong. How come I have to do this? Now, obviously, as a reporter, I believe in people coming forward, and I feel like it's my job to make it safe for people to tell the truth. But I really sympathized with their argument about the kind of pressure that these victims faced. So that's why we wanted as many documents, as much record of settlements. And also, we wanted it to be irrefutable, because a lot of these things happened in the privacy of a hotel room. And we didn't want a story that could be easily knocked down by Weinstein coming back and saying, hey, I was the only person there. You know, I'm telling you that nothing happened and that's definitive. We wanted other forms of proof about what happened. Is your sense- Or about, I should say, about the allegations. You talk about women, you know, having to come forward and talk about this stuff, even though they're the victims of it. Um, Is your sense either that you were able to get further on the story than previous journalists were, and I guess Ronan Farrow too, um, a week later, because there's some sort of change in the air culturally, or do you, do you, that's one theory I've heard. Another is another that a friend suggested to me is that maybe some of this was women were more willing to come forward because, you know, the stories about President Trump and the feeling like, you know, this was an especially uh, important time that these stories be told. Did you have some sense of, of any of that? Sure. I can tell you what our sources tell, told us broadly. Um, some of them I should have said, just asked that. What did your sources tell you? They, I'll tell you what they said, because I think their reasons are more important than mine. Some of them were really heartened by the fact that the Times had such a strong recent record of sexual harassment reporting, that the O'Reilly story had worked and the Silicon Valley story had worked. And in all of those cases, the women were believed and there was a lot of impact and a lot of accountability. And that made them feel 
I hope, like we had the playbook and we had the experience to handle these stories right. Um, another reason they gave um, was, yeah, they did. They did see. They did feel that the culture had changed somewhat, and the, you know, the days of women being slimed um, for coming forward with these allegations. They they hoped at least were over. Um, I, you know, to be honest, I think some of it is that Weinstein. I mean forget about his career now, even as of two weeks ago, he was a lot less powerful in Hollywood than he was years before. So many, many, many people were still afraid of him. And I don't want to understate that, but there was more of a feeling that he was at at the end of his career. And then I have to tell you one more thing, if I'm being honest, a couple of sources said they spoke to us because we're women reporters with a long history of reporting on women. Uh, There were sources who had never spoken to any other journalist who said things like, Every other journalist has who has approached me as a man, and I want to speak to a woman about this. Did you come across people who had tried to tell their stories to other publications or journalists and felt like their stories were mishandled or ignored? I don't think I have anything interesting to tell you on that one. You sure? <laughs> well, first of all, I'm not getting into confidential source conversations. Of like course, I'm willing okay. to broadly characterize the attitude yep. of sources. And I feel, yeah. Well, so let, I, let, I, let, I, let, and, and, and I just, I just, yeah. So like the combination of that and not being sure of their own, not being sure of people's experiences. I, yeah. It's just not. Uh, let me, let me rephrase that. Um, do you feel like there was um, a, a broad feeling among people that you talked to for this story, whether they were victims or not victims, that the press had failed to hold Harvey Weinstein accountable over the past several decades? You'd have to ask them that. But I think, honestly, a lot of them were more consumed with their own feelings. We spoke to a lot of former Merrimax executives and Weinstein Company executives who were quite tortured on these issues. And there were a number of people who I think ended up helping us because they had never really felt resolved um, with some of the things they had seen and witnessed there. So once you have all this material um, and you're turning it into a story, were you nervous about any pushback that about getting any pushback or eventually the pushback you got? I mean, I think the first I heard of this was the Hollywood Reporter story saying that uh, the Weinstein Company may sue you in The New Yorker, uh, The Times and The New Yorker. How, How anxious were you about that and how much pushback was there and at what point did the pushback start? I'm just thinking about your question. I'm just just letting like the last week sort of like, you know, rest with me for a second before I talk. I knew we were going to get pushback. Well, I'll tell you the way I felt. Um, Harvey Weinstein assembled this really large team to deal with us. So in the final days of preparing the story, we were interfacing with Lanny Davis and we were interfacing with Lisa Bloom and with Harvey. And, you know, he hired this powerful attorney, Charles Harder. And part of the experience of closing that story had to do with the fact that their responses were very varied and keep changing. Like if you picture a piano where apology 
is on the left hand of the keyboard and denial is on the right hand of the keyboard. They were playing both sides of the keyboard and everywhere in between, and it kept moving. So I think in terms of the pushback, part of what I was concentrating on as a reporter was just like the sort of fundamental journalistic questions of like, okay, wait a second, are they denying this? Or is he apologizing? Is he disputing the facts here? Because whatever his reaction is, we want to capture it correctly, but we're hearing a lot of different reactions from him. Well, uh, that's interesting you say that because I always, I, I thought that that was the problem with, with their PR strategy was it wasn't clear whether they were saying, you know, we're going to go after you because this is bullshit or they were saying, you know, no, we're, we're somewhat contrite, but not totally contrite. I mean, it was just, it was a very, it was a very confusing public strategy, I guess, as well as a private strategy. <laughs> Your observation. <laughs> uh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> you know, when you were reporting this story, um, how big of, how did, did you get a sense that this is a bigger problem? Weinstein-like behavior is a bigger problem in Hollywood that, than you previously imagined. Is, is, did, the, did people talk about this as if it's something that's more or less common than we think? And did it change the way you think of the industry at all? Yes, I had a lot of conversations with actresses about this topic. And here's what I think I would summarize as what I've learned. Based on everything I heard, I think casting couch behavior is not at all dead in Hollywood. It still persists. But a lot of it is relatively casual. A lot of actresses will say, yeah, a few times in my career, I have had, you know, an unwelcome hand on my thigh from a producer, or I've had a leering, inappropriate comment at an audition. But Weinstein's harassment appears to have been different. And part of the sort of like journey of the reporting over the summer was beginning to see and understand that he appears to have had a system and a methodology. And it really was that kind of like, we we had, Megan Tui and I had a version of like, one of those journalistic aha moments where all the, you know, you've been putting all these puzzle pieces together and then you begin to grasp that there's sort of a larger mechanism that you're looking at. And what we became convinced of and then very committed to documenting was that, you know, this wasn't a case of like a producer hitting on some women at a bar, right? This was much more organized than that. What we have now, I think, been able to prove both through interviews with actresses, but also the assistants and the executives, is that there was a lot of facilitation here. Weinstein's MO, as far as we understand the allegations, is that he lured women to private places, usually hotel rooms, with the promise of work. He would say, I want to discuss a script with you, or even I want to discuss your Oscar campaign for this movie, which, you know, for an actress is like, who's not going to go to the hotel room to have that conversation, right? And often the, those meetings were set up like work meetings. Like if you listen to Gwyneth Paltrow's story, she says, of course I went to the hotel suite because the, the meeting was set up on a fax from CAA. It was my agent telling me to show up at that suite. So it really did seem like a normal work thing. And then once Weinstein had the women alone, that is when they say that kind of the tables were turned and they realized that the work was just a pretext and they felt very lured and manipulated and like they were really there for him to make 
advances on. And all of that demanded a lot of support and facilitation. There were logistics with the hotels. There were assistants who set it up. There were travel arrangements. There were people who arranged the meetings. There are even accounts of like Weinstein Company executives having to wait downstairs in the lobby. And when the women came down, they would be helped uh, with, you know, casting and finding agents, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have some sense from talking to people uh, when you were writing the story or since it's come out about the effect this is likely to have or to not have in Hollywood? I mean, because, you know, this is still a place where, as you say, this goes on. This is still a place where Roman Polanski has no trouble casting his movies with uh, famous and big name actors and actresses. I, I mean, you know, to, to what degree is, is behavior going to change? Do you think? Well, you know, we're a couple of days out from when we published, so I think it's a little early to talk about impact. We know that the impact in terms of conversation is enormous, but I think the impact will be constructive. And this is the reason. Very late in the reporting process, somebody said to me, you know, because Harvey got away with this for so long, it sends a message to everybody else that they can get away with it too. And that essentially, there is no accountability for serious sexual harassment allegations in Hollywood. My hope is that now that all of these women have spoken up, right? I mean, it's, it's been an incredible array of women who have spoken, ranging from actresses who were kind of barely even actresses, they were barely even in the industry, to top, top people like Angelina Jolie and Gwyneth Paltrow. They've, they've now collectively said, this is a big problem. And Hollywood now has to grapple with the moral question of, like, really, how could you accumulate 30 years of allegations and nobody stopped it? You know, who is protecting the women? Who is protecting Harvey Weinstein? And then you've got all of this cultural history in question, right? I mean, all of these years of Oscars and Sundance and can and award shows and, you know, in movies that you and I watched on the big and the small screens, I think there are questions about those years and, you know, what really happened then and what kind of abuse may have been happening off screen. And now that all of that is in question, I, I do think it, I do think it forces a powerful conversation in Hollywood. Um, were you consciously, you must have been consciously aware that Ronan Farrow was also working on a story. Um, how, how much of an impetus was there to to have the first story? And secondly, um, when his story came out, um, and I would ask him the same question if I have him on the podcast, um, is how much of his story had you heard various accounts of that you just weren't quite able to nail down, but these stories that he told were were out there? So we were kind of dimly aware that he was working on something. And then at times it came into sharper focus. It was a little confusing for us because first he was, I guess, reporting it for NBC and then he was reporting it for The New Yorker. So like it all makes sense now. But at the time, you know, we were a little bit confused um, about what his project was or what direction he was going in. We were aware of it. And then when I read his story, and by the way, I congratulate him on his reporting. And, um, uh, you know, I think it's, I mean, to, to state the obvious, I think it's a case of how journalistic competition can be really healthy. When I read Ronan's story, part of me thought there appear to have been more than enough allegations to go around. What does it mean that you can do this entire long New York Times investigation that's thousands and thousands of words and then 
a few days later, you can do this enormous New Yorker investigation that's thousands and thousands of words. And these accounts are both filled with all of these devastating allegations. And yet there's remarkably little overlap between the two stories, right? And so I thought it was a great demonstration of just how we now have to ask ourselves, what is the size and scope of this thing? And how much more is there out there that we haven't even learned about? Um, do you have any idea why his story didn't run, didn't appear on NBC News in some form? Oh, I can't speculate on his project. Um, I'll let you go in a second. I just wanted to ask, which is that um, Sharon Waxman has come out with a report saying that uh, the New York Times, I think in 2004, quote, gutted a piece she wanted to do because of about Harvey Weinstein because uh, pressure was brought to bear on editors of the Times. Was this a story or at least her version of that story? Was that something you were aware of? And have you talked to anyone in the building about it? Not really. Can can you say did when you were reporting the story did was there any pressure brought to bear on the times that you feel like was then communicated to you from your editors or anybody at the times yeah i'll tell you what the pressure from the times was the pressure from the times was nail this story the pressure from was dean bakay saying deliver the goods, go get it. The pressure was, you know, seeing the publisher, Arthur Salzberger, in the cafeteria and knowing that he was protecting us and that this institution was standing by us. And so Megan Tui and I felt pr- enormous pressure to deliver um, to deliver the, the best, strongest story we could. And it was so meaningful when we were talking to the alleged victims to say, the New York Times is so committed to this. This institution is willing to lose advertising. And this institution is willing to stand up to this guy who can be a very intimidating figure. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, anyway, that I, I, I should, I should, I should leave it there. But, but I would say there was a tremendous amount of pressure. But the pressure was to get the story, not to abandon the story. Jody Cantor, um, the story is out now. You can find it on the New York Times website. Uh, both stories, I should say. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be with you. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling, with help today from Daniel Schroeder and Chris O'Day. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. There's one other thing I want to tell you about today. The shocking results of the 2016 election left many people wondering how our country would change under a Trump presidency. Many Americans feared the worst, some hoped for the best, others leapt into action. Now, with a year gone by, Slate will take stock of the year that was. You can join a bunch of Slate writers for a series of one-on-one conversations with those at the forefront of politics, media, the law, and activism as they compare notes on the lessons, challenges, and victories they have seen over the past year and what they expect going forward. The event is called the People vs. Trump Year One, and it's taking place on November 8th at 7.30. So if you're in New York, you should show up at the New School Auditorium, which is at 66 West 12th Street in New York. You can get tickets and information by going to slate.com slash live.